So today, uh, we've been covering this series called Unsung Heroes. And as we've been talking about different people in the Bible who maybe didn't get all the recognition that some of the greater or bigger people in the Bible typically get, like an Abraham or a Moses. But yet they still did amazing things that made impacts in the world that we know today, especially in biblical history. And we looked at different people like Barnabas, how we saw how ordinary people are able to do extraordinary things, especially the impact that Barnabas had on Paul's life. We even looked at Hannah's life, how you can be broken and heroic at the same time, as we understand how faithful God is to us. We even saw Balaam's life, and how even though sometimes we make mistakes, we fall, God's grace really redeems everything that we've gone through before. And so today we wanted to close out by talking about a person named Mordecai. And uh, you can actually turn to uh, the book of Esther. We're going to actually read through various passages. Uh, most of the passages will be up on the PowerPoint. So we'll skip through uh, the book of Esther uh, to look at who Mordecai was and his character and what really set him apart, what allowed him to make a difference in the Bible in those times that really have reverberating impacts even to us today. So uh, turn to, go ahead, turn to Esther. And while you're turning there, uh, what I wanted to do was to start with a question this morning. Just actually show of hands, okay? How many of us, we had a dream of like making a difference when we were young. We wanted to like do something big. Okay, not many of us had dreams. Okay, there we go, all of us. All of us, all of us, we wanted to do something that's, that's special, right? All of us, we wanted to do something special. We want to make an impact, you know, like the typical, like, oh, I wanted to be a firefighter, right? And I wanted to, like, you know, but you realize being a firefighter is actually really dangerous and really difficult. You're like, scrap that, I'll just be a doctor, right? Um, so many of us, we had these kind of dreams, or we wanted to do these big things. And I remember when I was in middle school, like, and I think it was in our history class or our liberal arts studies, they were, you know, talking about, like, what do you want to do? And we're like, you know, little, little uh, 10, 12-year-old kids, and like, I want to solve world hun hunger, you know? And, and you have these kind of dreams, and then and oftentimes, like, at the dinner table, my parents would be like, you can start by finishing your food. Because <laughs> they're little kids out in some other country who can't eat right now, right? And so they're always guilt-tripping you. And then I heard, I heard recently there's this other, like, uh, what's it called? This other uh, saying that says, oh, if you don't finish your food, then your future wife or your future spouse will get pimples, right? Like, if, if you don't eat all your food, then your spouse is going to have pimples. I was like, thank God, praise the Lord, I ate all my food. Um, <laughs> now, if we're more realistic, if we're more realistic, you know, we realize as we grow up, we get a little bit more jaded. We get a little bit more uh, realistic in the sense where we feel like, okay, you know, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do all of that. I'm not sure if I can really make a big impact on this world, you know, and so maybe what's best is let me just live my own life. Let me just have a good life. Let me just get a job, provide for myself and for my family, and just, I just want to have a decent life. That's the, that's, that's the least that I, I can get. And, and I know that there are so many other things that I can do, but, you know, maybe this is just my lot. And I'm wondering if, you know, some of us, we feel that way to the point where we just really given up on any sense of, you know, I want to make a difference. I want to change the world. I mean, some of us, we're still like 18, 19, and we're still idealistic. And then once you hit your mid-20s into your 30s, you're like, oh, well, I guess 
that dream passed. And so what I want us to think about this morning is, what, would it be, what, what is really necessary for us to make a difference in this world? What kind of people do we need to be in order to make a change, to make an impact? And so I wanted to show us a video. There's, there's a video of youth, young people, who dramatically changed the world. And some people you've heard of, some people you've never heard of before. But it's really interesting, and they give a little bit of explanation on what their accomplishments were. But if you really think about it, for people at this kind of age to really make a big difference, it's really not all the things that they've done. But we really see it's something else that was greater. So let's watch this video together. Wow. I'm just like, what am I doing with my life, right? <laughs> Someone like found the early signs diagnosis for cancer. Someone else, like, you can you imagine like sitting with some of those children? Like, oh, I got shot in the head when I was young. What did you do with your life? I'm, I'm cleaning up 20 billions of plastic in the ocean. What are you doing with your life? You know, and, and, and when we just think about these things, we're like, oh, like, beyond, without being inspired, I, I think some of us, we look at these videos and we're like, there's no way I could do something like that. There's not, no way that I could possibly make a difference like that. For them to save 3,000 children, for someone else to invent a whole new writing system for those who, are, who can't see. And when we look at our lives, we're like, God, I just want to like, just live my life. Just leave me alone, you know? Let those genius children do those types of things. But what really makes us so different than some of those people? What makes us so different than the 19-year-old, the 12-year-old, the, 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 the teenager who's in the lab and, and working on some certain things? Are we really that different than who they are? and what they were able to accomplish. And what if God wants to use us to do equally as great and amazing things to make an impact on this world? What if it wasn't so much our skills or abilities? Because to be honest, what, what kind of skills do you have at 19 years old? What, what kind of genius abilities do we really have when we're teenagers? Think about it. When, when, how many of you are internships, show of hands, right now, currently? How many of you have no idea what you're doing? <laughs> That's most of you, okay? Even some of us who are working, we're like, I still don't have any idea what I'm doing at work. I'm just kind of like doing things, right? And you realize, like, it's not because you're so skilled or you're so competent or you're so great that allows you to be who you are, do what you do, or help your company or contribute something. There must be something different. There must be something more to it. And what we see in the Bible, when we looked at some of these characters and we look at Mordecai's life, we see it wasn't because he was so skilled or so great or so competent, but it's because he allowed himself to be a vessel that God used to make a big impact in society. And so that's why I want to give us the one thing for this morning. The one thing is that our capacity to change the world comes from cultivating a Christ-like character. Our capacity to change the world comes from cultivating a Christ-like character. It's not to do with your confidence, not to do with all these skills or ability. It's that character of who you are, 
and how God can use you in your character that will allow you to make an impact. So we want to talk about three different traits about this person named Mordecai and, and different ways that we can learn about him and how he was able to make an impact. And there are different avenues. And, and, and the reason why, or I want to share the, the kind of theme behind these traits. And each of these traits are like just be X, Y, and Z. It's an adjective. And the reason why I put it as just as is because these are not, these are not traits that are so difficult. It's not, it's not a trait that says be superhuman. It's not a trait that encourages you to be uh, extraordinary in any kind of way. But these are traits that every single one of us, we can experience and we can learn to develop. So the first trait for us to be able to develop a Christ-like character is just to be available. Let's just be available. So hopefully you've turned to Esther. Um, and actually, on the mobile app, if you go to HMCC, uh, in the Google Play Store or App Store, you can find the fill-in notes. And the notes there will have the passages because we do jump around uh, quite a bit in the book of Esther, and then the, no, uh, the verses will be on the screen as well, so we can uh, read along together. So let's read Esther, chapter 2, verses 5 to 7, and also verses 21 to 23. It says, Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, the king of Judah, who Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. And we'll skip down to verse 21. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So right in this passage, we get an introduction to this person named Mordecai. And when we think about, okay, what does it really take to be available, we have to understand some of what his background was, to really understand why he was there, what he was doing, and, and who this person named Esther, and what his relationship with her was. When we, look at, uh, when we look at Mordecai, we realize he's Jewish. He was living in the city of Susa, and at that time in Jewish history, they were, there was an exile. All the Jews, for, for so many years, they had disobeyed God. And after some time, God said, you know what, forget it. I'm going to send you into exile because you've constantly been disobeying and disobeying and disobeying. So God, he allowed the Babylonian Empire to take over and conquer Jerusalem and take all the Jews, not all the Jews, but most of the Jews back to Babylon to live in exile. So, so Mordecai was one of these Jews who had been living in exile. By Mordecai's time, there had been some Jews who had went back to Jerusalem already. But for whatever reason, Mordecai is still living outside of Jerusalem in the city called Susa. And so we notice right here, as we understand Mordecai's background, we notice that there are two moments right in this passage that God uses Mordecai's availability to actually save the Jews. The first thing that he does is he cares for Esther. He cares for Esther. Uh, some of us, we may be familiar with Esther's story, 
But for those of us who are, aren't as familiar with Esther's story, is that she was an orphan. She was an orphan because her father and mother passed away. And as we saw in the verses here, that Mordecai ends up taking Esther as his own daughter. Why is this significant? Why is, why is taking Esther as his own daughter so important? Esther was a very important person in the whole book of Esther. Clearly, it's named Book of Esther, right? So Esther was clearly one of the main characters, one of the main people. What was it that was so significant about who she was? Well, just some background was that in the book of Esther, there was the king, King Assyrius, but also in other translations called King Xerxes. And what ended up happening was he threw out his wife because she wouldn't obey him. He called for uh, all the women of the land to be chosen as his new wife. So he ended up choosing Esther. And then during that period... Actually, what happened was there was an enemy of the Jews named Haman who plotted to kill all the Jews because he had a great amount of authority. And God, through this book, through Esther's queenship, she became queen, God used Esther to actually save all the Jews. We won't look, read the whole book. Of course, it's like 10 chapters. It'll be too long. But we notice and we realize at the end that God really uses Esther to save all the Jews and, and the whole kingdom. That's an incredible feat. And it's interesting that in the very beginning, we see right here in chapter 2, who plays a pivotal role in Esther's life? It's Mordecai. It's Mordecai. Oftentimes we think that those people who do great things, they have like these amazing pedagogy, or, or what is it, Pe not pedagogy, what's the word? I forgot what it's called. Anyways, it's a, your lineage, right? Your, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, you feel like they come from this very well-off line with lots of skills and lots of development. But Esther wasn't like that. She came from a family where her parents both passed away. And so that's why Mordecai was needed to step in to be able to take care of her. It was interesting that he takes care of her because it says that Esther was the daughter of Mordecai's uncle. So actually, they were cousins. We don't know. It doesn't really say how much older Mordecai was than Esther, but we can't imagine he couldn't have been that much younger. And for Mordecai just to be available, who knows if they had other family there? Who knows if... Uh, in my mind, I was reading this. I was like, Why didn't Esther's uncle just adopt Esther? Why did it have to be Mordecai? But for whatever reason, Mordecai was the person who was available to take her hand. And, it, and it's not just... You know, I think some of us, we just think of, like, babysitting. It's like, oh, once in a while, it's just, like, a couple hours a week. It's not that bad. Just to actually take someone as your own daughter, it requires a complete life change. It requires investment. And I'm just thinking about, like, how much would it cost to, like, raise a child? Like, it's, you know, I'm just, I can't imagine what it's like, right? I'm just trying to feed myself right now and feed one more person. But to, but to be able to take care of, like, a child must have been an, a, a crazy investment that wouldn't have been easy to make a decision like that. But Mordecai made himself available for that. What else did Mordecai make himself available for? He was available so that he could warn the king. And then when we already read this in verses 21 to 23, but we saw that in those days, Mordecai, he was just sitting at the king's gate. And there was this plot against the king to kill the king. 
And because Mordecai was sitting there, then he was able to overhear the plan and inform Esther, who would then tell the king to eventually save the king's life. Why was saving the king's life, and why was it so important for Mordecai to do that? He was at the right place at the right time. Because later in the book of Esther, we see that the fact that Mordecai saved the king was recorded and gave Mordecai credibility so that he could actually have power to go against the enemy of the Jews who were trying to kill the Jews. And it just happened to be Mordecai sitting there at the gate. I don't know how many of us we, we've ever been used by God in an unintentional way, in ways that we never imagined that God would use us, but just because we were sitting there, we were just available. Whether it's a, a life group member who just happened to be sick, and even though you, you didn't intend to do anything, but you just being there was a huge source of encouragement. I don't know how, for how many of us, like, we, we sit there maybe in the last, very last life group when we're sharing testimonies, and people are uh, telling stories about what they experienced in life group and how blessed they were, and then one by one person shares, and then someone just happens to share, oh, you know, like, I was just really down that time, and I, I was just really broken, and... And, you know, I think just someone just, you know, sent out a quick prayer for me. And you're like, I did what? You're like, I don't even remember. But that person was so impacted and blessed by what you did. Just by being available, just by being willing to serve and to love and to care for someone in that moment. Wondering how many moments throughout our lives and our days do we experience that make big impacts in people's lives that we don't even realize, that we don't even notice. What is it about being available that's so important and so impactful for people's lives? And, and I was thinking about Mordecai in his availability to whether it's to raise Esther as his daughter or to warn the king. What was it that made him so special what was it that made him so able? What was it that made him so confident to accomplish these things? I don't think it was anything that was so great about himself. I think it was just because he was available, just because he was there, and just because he was able to care. The first question that popped to mind was, does, does Mordecai know how to raise kids? Is he, is he ready for uh, being a father? Does he know all the protocols of the kingdom so that he can know exactly who to report it to and then tell the king, like, this is what's going to happen and you're going to die and, and I'm here to save you? Does he know all those things? People joke all the time with me. So after, after I got married, the first question I get, oh, when are little zoos coming out? Right? And they're like, oh, we can't wait to see them. And like half of our, our, uh, the wedding cards that we got were like, oh, I can't wait to see the little zoo. They're like running around and all that kind of stuff. I'm like, <laughs> and I'm just like, uh. <laughs> you know, like, you don't know how to respond to that kind of question, right? You're like, okay, you know. And like, I think especially like right after we got married, and in my mind, I'm like, okay, I just got married. I don't know if like I'm ready, you know, to have kids or to have that kind of responsibility. I'm just trying to move in, right? I'm just trying to like get all my stuff together and just have a place and just be able to get back into the work uh, like zone. And, I, and I'm just like sitting there every time someone asks that of me, I'm like, 
no, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. I'm not ready, right? And then I'm just constantly thinking, I'm not ready. And I'm just thinking about Mordecai. I'm like, there's no way he was ready. And then and the people are like, when are you going to be ready to have kids? And so when I was talking about this with uh, some of the covenant um, men, and I was talking with some of the husbands, I'm like, how did you know you were ready to have kids? And every single one of them, we weren't. <laughs> we weren't ready. I was like, okay, all right, I, you know, I don't know what else to do. I, I'm not sure how else that I can prepare myself to get to that point where I'm like, yes, I have check, 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 tick. Every tick is ticked off so that I know exactly that I'm ready to be a father. And so at this point, I'm just like, okay, I don't know. Maybe I'm never going to be ready, God. And this is, the, this, is, this is us, isn't it? So many of us, when we're presented with a situation, when there's a need, when there's someone that's hurting, when there's, someone, there's, there's an opportunity to serve, what is the first thing that we often say? I'm not ready. I'm not ready. I'm not ready to join salt community. I got to work on myself first. I, I, I don't know if I can like help facilitate stuff. Like, what if people ask me questions I don't know what, what to say? It's going to happen. Yes, it's going to happen. <laughs> well, well, what, what, what if someone, you know, looks at me and, I, and I'm not representing things well? What if, I, what if I make a mistake? I'm not ready to be baptized. I'm not ready to take that step of faith to actually commit my life to Christ. I'm not ready to take that step and actually disciple someone else. And the list goes on and on and on of things that we don't feel like we're ready for. but something that we say oftentimes in our churches, as soon as you say, I'm not ready, that means you know what being ready looks like. But how many of us, we know what being ready looks like? How, how many of us will actually ever get to that place where we feel like we're 100% ready? That's the fact of the matter of life. We're never going to feel fully ready. When did you feel ready to go to college? University, you probably did it. When did you feel ready to graduate university and go into the working world? You probably didn't. And for so many of us, our evaluation of whether we're ready or not is so tied to how competent we are, how much we feel like our worth is tied to our performance. And only and only when we feel like we're doing everything perfectly. Will we be at a point where we say, God, I'm ready? But the, that's exactly the problem. Is because if we ever get to that point, then we're doing everything out of our own strength, our own ability, and actually out of our pride. Can you imagine if we all waited like, hello, I'm ready, I'm perfect, I'm awesome, use me, God. That's not the kind of attitude that God even wants to use us with. And so for us to always wait till we're ready, we're missing the total point of the attitude that God wants us to have, a heart of availability, 
a heart that's willing to serve, a heart that is open to being used by God regardless of whether we feel fully competent or ready or not. Maybe the question isn't so much, are we ready? Maybe the question isn't so much, are we competent? Maybe the real question for us is, how much do we care? When we think about this concept of availability, being available, the question really comes down to, how much is it that we care? How much is it that we love someone enough to, to go outside of our own schedules, to inconvenience ourselves, to say, I care enough for you that I'm going to be available regardless of how competent, how able I am, no matter what kind of schedule I have, no matter what kind of inconvenience it might bring to me, because I want to love you. We see this in Jesus' life. We see this when he's with the disciples and he's coming to be with the crowds and when he performs the miracle of feeding the 5,000. Many of us, we know that story. I want to read just a, a brief excerpt of that. In Matthew 14, verses 13 to 14, this is when Jesus is, he's done a long day of ministry. His disciples just came back. They were like casting out demons. They were raising people from the dead. They were doing all these amazing things. And Jesus, he says, you know, come and let's have a rest. So he says, now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. He had compassion on them and healed their sick. This is right after Jesus did a long days of ministry. Right after the disciples, they went out. He sent them out two by two. He said, don't take anything with you. Share the good news. Bring the kingdom of God. They're tired. Imagine you just came back from a whole month's mission trip. You're just doing hard labor. You came back from a, a service project, community service. You're serving orphans. You're going to orphanage. You did all these great things. You come back to your master, Jesus, and Jesus is saying, okay, come rest for a while. And then all of a sudden, you see these crowds coming. And what does Jesus do? He has compassion. He cares for the people. And then later on in that part, in the story, he says, turns to the disciples, he says, you give them something to eat. You serve them. Be available. Care for those people. And we see the, the ending of that story is, isn't the disciples actually doing the work. It's Jesus who actually gave, turned the five loaves and two fish into feeding the 5,000. How many of us, when we realize, when we think about our lives, when we see the lack that we have, what hinders us is our insecurity about how able that we feel like we are. It's not really to do with our schedules or how busy. I, I feel like we, we make this excuse. We're like, oh, I'm so busy. I have so many things to do. I have so many meetings. My work, I'm just doing so much OT, and I just don't have any time. Well, I have so much class. I have so many activities. I'm involved in all these societies. And all our schedules are about you. There's no room for caring for someone else. 
And I'm wondering, at what point will we say, Jesus, you know what? I've made my whole life about me. That I've boxed out everything else in my life. That my whole schedule is me. My development. My future. My career. My studies. My grades. My salary. That it leaves no room for being available for someone else. I want to challenge us with that this morning. Can we make ourselves available? Can we look at our schedules, our calendars, and say, you know what, God? The time that you've given to me, it's not mine. It's yours. And I want to use that to be able to love on someone else. Help me to be available. Let's continue on. Jesus is challenging us not just to be available, but also just being steady. Just being steady. Let's continue on and read Esther 3, verses 1 to 6, as we look into the second point. It says, After these things, King Azarias promoted Haman the Agite, the son of Hamadetha. Sorry, Haman is the enemy of the Jews who is trying to kill all the Jews. So King Azarias promoted and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to, to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. They told Haman. In or- and when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman would fill- was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Azarias. When we look at to how Mordecai was challenged to just be steady, we, we just realize like Mordecai is like just doing weird and strange things again. He, now he, he, he takes Esther as his daughter, and then he just happens to be sitting at the king's gate. For whatever reason, he was available, and he saved and helped save the king. Now, he's like going off and not bowing to the person that he ought to bow to. And when we see this, it says that Mordecai did not bow or pay homage to Haman. What does this word pay homage actually mean? We look at the Cambridge English Dictionary, and the definition, homage, is defined as deep respect and often praise shown for a person or God. So what Mordecai was not doing was he was not paying the respects or honor that Haman had deserved. Because Haman, right at that point, he was second in the whole kingdom to King Azarius. King Azarius had made him like the second number one, second guy that everyone had to respect. And that was the law. And because of his faith, Mordecai was going against this law. And we noticed that Jews were not to bow down to any other person other than God. We see this in Exodus 20, verse 4, in the New Living Translation. It says, you must not make for yourself an idol or any kind of image of anything in the heavens or of the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. So we see here Mordecai, he was taking a stand. 
taking a stand that was completely out of the ordinary for all the people in that society. Everyone else, so it seemed, was bowing down. Everyone else was complying with the instructions given by the king. But for whatever reason, Mordecai said, I will not. I will not, because he wanted to honor the Lord his God. And Mordecai caused a lot of problems. Mordecai's faith in his stand caused Haman to want to kill all the Jews. We see that in verse 6. It says, Haman, he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So they had made known to him the people of Mordecai. Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, through the whole kingdom. I'm wondering how many of us, we've been in a situation similar to Mordecai, when standing on your faith is deeply unpopular and actually ends up causing more problems than what you initially imagined. How many of us have experienced that before? Whether it's like we, we received Christ for the very first time and we're you know, considering baptism, but we're so afraid of what our friends would think. And the, the biggest terrifying fear is, oh, if my friends find out I'm Christian, what if they all leave me? What if they never spend time with me anymore? What if they never want to hang out with me anymore? What if they, I, they think I'm just like one of those weird Jesus freaks and, and I can't, like, go do the normal things that we normally do as friends anymore. Or how many of us, we've experienced that with our families? Or parents, with your children? Or your children's doing all these things for God, and you're like, what is going on with their child? They're no longer obeying me anymore. And for many of us, our parents, as soon as we do anything remotely in obedience to what we feel like God is wanting us to do, what happens? They start threatening us. You can't go on that missions project. You need to come home. You need to do X, Y, and Z. You cannot do these things for God. Focus on your career. Focus on your grades. And for whatever reason, it seems like the more and more we try to do things God's way, the worse it becomes for us. In work context, I don't know how many of us we've ever tried to be open about our faith in our workplace. How many of us we've been, we've been in church or we've been in life group and we, we heard the call to say, hey, share your faith, be open, love people, share the gospel. And you go along and you're, okay, Monday morning, okay, I'm going to share the gospel, I'm going to share the gospel, I'm going to do this. I got this. You, you open your mouth and the first person you talk to, one of your colleagues, they just blow up on you. Because whether they think it's totally inappropriate to bring your faith into the workplace, or they think that you're stupid, or you're swindled, or you're brainwashed to believe in something that seems so fake or false. And it ends up ruining and hurting your prospects for a promotion or a raise or favor within your company. And how many of us, we encounter any of those difficulties, and then we give up. Say, oh, God, I tried, and it didn't work out, so I, 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 can't, I can't be a witness at my workplace. Okay, God, you know, I was trying to follow you, but my parents were really going against it, so it just doesn't look like things are going to work out. 
Since when in the Bible did Jesus ever promise a smooth and perfect life? Since when in the Bible does it say that persecution would not come? Since when did ever Jesus promise that the Christian life would be easy and calm and everything that we wanted would happen just exactly the way that we wanted it to happen? It doesn't promise that. But for whatever reason, we subscribe to that kind of theology to somehow think that every step that we take for God, that it needs to go smoothly, that it needs to happen well, and that if there's any kind of resistance, it must not be God's purposes. And for some of us, that's just a one-time thing. For some of us, we, we, we hit one wall, and then we get discouraged. But how many of us, we've experienced this day after day after day. We notice that people spoke to Mordecai day after day. Did we catch that? Did you catch that? In verse 4, the king's servants who were criticizing Mordecai, saying, why do you transgress the king's command? In verse 4, it says, and when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. How many of us, we can say, you know what? Even if I have to deal with this pressure every single day of my life, that I will not compromise on what I believe about who Jesus is and what he wants me to do. How many of us, we're at that point where we, we want to give up? We've made certain sacrifices. We said, I will not go on that trip so that I can do this thing or serve in this way. I talked to my boss to somehow get these days off or to get hours in line so that I can participate in life group. And day after day, you're feeling there's more pressure and more tension because you feel like it's becoming unsustainable. People are criticizing you over and over again. You say, God, I made these sacrifices. I've committed to salt community. I've, I've committed this year to you. But God, why aren't you answering me? Why are my grades dropping? Why are my friendships suffering? Why is my career not blossoming? Why, God, why? And for some of us to be able to remain steadfast, to be steady, doesn't come from the circumstances changing or becoming better. But the only way that we can be steadfast in our convictions to live out, to be faithful to the convictions or the commitments or the sacrifices that we made is if we put our ultimate hope in the eternal reward that we're going to have in heaven because of the gift that Jesus Christ has given to us. There's nothing else, there's nothing in this world that will satisfy enough to say that will give us enough hope to continue to push on. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 in the NLT, it says, So my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for that you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. Nothing we do for God is ever useless. Everything that we do, every sacrifice that we make, every hardship that we endure, He can use it for his purposes, for his kingdom. 
We may never know what the ultimate reason is or what the result is. We may never know. I've heard stories, and myself, I've been praying for my family for over 10 years, but I've heard stories of people who've been praying for family members 30, 40 years and nothing happens. And they don't know what impact that has. They may never know. They might pass away before they find out. But we hold on to this promise. We trust in God that we know that nothing we ever do for God is useless or is hopeless because we ultimately have an eternal reward that we're looking forward to. Not an earthly reward, not a circumstantial reward, but a heavenly one. So my question for us this morning is, what are the trials, what are the challenges, what are the tensions that we feel this morning, today in this season, these, these past few months, that have been just like aching in our hearts, that have been pulling us in so many directions, that where we just want to say, God, I just want to give up. And maybe God is saying to you, don't give up. Don't give in. Continue to persevere. Be steadfast. Because our hope is not here, but it is in heaven. Let's finish with the third point. Not only is Jesus challenging us just to be available, just being steady, but also to just be patient. Just be patient. Let's finish off and read Esther 4, verses 10 through 17. It says, Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except, for, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have been not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I and my young women will fast will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. In this passage, we notice that the story is building up to this point where now Haman has sent out letters to all the provinces in the kingdom to say, on this particular day, all the Jews must be killed. That because of what Mordecai had done, this order was decreed and all the people were to destroy the Jewish people in that kingdom. And so we here now see Esther now communicating with Mordecai and now trying to figure out what do we do in that situation. And we now see through their exchange, Mordecai is challenging and encouraging Esther to do something about it, saying, Maybe it's for such a time as this that you were placed in this position. And there are a couple of things about Mordecai. When we think about how he was patient, 
There are a few things that he does and things that he doesn't do that actually reveals something important about his character. Well, what does Mordecai do? Well, we see a few things that he does. He calls Esther out. <laughs> he says, he gives her perspective to say, you know, just because you're in the palace doesn't mean you're going to be safe from everything, Esther. And he encourages her to use her status. You're a queen. Maybe this is exactly the reason why you became queen. He's trying to wake her up. He's trying to say, look, this is the time for such a time as this. Maybe that's why God put you there. But it's what Mordecai doesn't do that shows the other side of the perspective. What does Mordecai not do? He never forces Esther to go to the king. He asks her questions. He gives her perspective. But he doesn't take control, and he doesn't demand his own timeline. When we look, look, let's look back at verse 14. It says, For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. It, I don't know, just whenever that mind, it's just so interesting. If you don't do this, pretty much what he's saying, then someone else is going to save the Jews. I don't know about you, but when I'm trying to motivate someone to do something, usually the worst thing to do is give them a back door or second option. Right? If I were Mordecai, I'd be like, Esther, listen, Esther, come here. Let me talk to you. You know, your life would be like, I need to talk to you right now. You got to do this. Because if you don't do this, then disaster's going to happen. Our life group's going to go down. No one's going to receive Christ. You know? Like, in a, in such a dramatic way, if I were Mordecai, I'd be like, Esther, listen. Like, literally, everyone's going to die. Just try to make it as dramatic as possible, right? But he doesn't do that. He says, deliverance can come from somewhere else. I mean, the only other possibility I was thinking, I was like, oh, okay, maybe, maybe Mordecai, he's like playing this like reverse psychology game, you know? Like, maybe he's saying like, oh, like, I'm just going to say, oh, there's possibly another option, and then she's going to interpret that as reverse psychology, and she's going to do the opposite thing. But that's just like, okay, like, let's be serious here. For Mordecai to say something like that, for Mordecai to tell Esther, like, you know what? This is perhaps your time. This is a Kairos moment, an opportune moment for God to use you. But I still believe, regardless, that perhaps there can be deliverance, there can be salvation, there can be hope for the Jewish people, even if you don't follow through. It shows that Mordecai has a different faith and a different sense of patience than you and I. That, at least for myself, what I would have done in that situation. For Mordecai to be able to say something, for Mordecai to be convicted, for Mordecai to be convinced that deliverance will be from somewhere else, potentially somewhere else, he had to be open to the fact that maybe Esther wouldn't actually go to the king. He had to be open to the fact that maybe it wouldn't go according to his plans, according to his timeline. How many of us were okay with that? 
How many of us were, were patient that way? Verse 16. What does Esther say? Go gather all the Jews, fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. If I'm Mordecai, I'm like, girl, we're going to die. Why do you need to fast? It's so clear. Just do it. Why is it going to take three days and three nights for you to make a decision? I, I don't know how many of us are like, uh, I'm, I'm really like this with technology, okay? Like, I'm a techno nerd, okay? So I love technology, and, and I, like, like, I set up my computer. I have, like, I have two monitors at work, and I have like the stand-up desk. It's really nice. And I, I have like, the hub so I can plug it in. And I try to like, minimize the time it takes to set up my computer so I can do everything as fast as possible. And then when I'm using my computer, like I'm one of those guys, I try to learn as many shortcuts as I possibly can so that I don't have to use the mouse as, as I, I use the mouse as little as I possibly can. So like when I'm working, right, and you're just, right? And then when I use Gmail, I don't know if you guys know this, but if you like use Gmail, I'm like a Gmail power user, you hit GI, you can go back to the mailbox, JK, you can go through different messages. I don't know if you ever knew that, but it's wonderful, it's amazing. And I really believe it will increase your productivity by 100%. <laughs> Kind of half joking, but you should learn shortcuts. Anyways. <laughs> and so me being the way that I am, I get especially frustrated with people who don't understand shortcuts. <laughs> like when I'm watching other people do work and I'm like, uh, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm kind of like a project manager, so like I work with uh, developers and I'm, I'm trying to give them some guidance, direction for implementing. And so when I'm like standing next to them and they're like working, and I like see some of them, they like tap, tap click, click, click. I'm like, it drives me up the wall. I'm like, oh my god, there's a, you could have done what you did in one minute in like 10 seconds, okay? And I like, and, and this is bad of me, but I can't help but kind of like move over, you know? Like, let me do that and let me show you how it's done. <laughs> and I realize there's a part of me that like, I really believe that expediency and quickness is like the best thing for every single kind of situation. I, I really believe the faster it is, the better it is, right? I become like, okay, there's a stereotype. Hong Kong people, they love like uh, quickness as opposed to customer service, right? So now, even for myself, like when there's people like you're going through the MTR and there's someone who's like fumbling for their Octopus card, you're like, oh my God, why are they taking so long? You know, you're like that. You're like, oh my gosh, like what is going on? Why are you so slow? And this is the question that was posed to me. It's like, why do you have to do everything so fast? What is it about speed that somehow that by doing things faster, everything will be better? And I had to take a look into my heart. Like, in those moments when I was standing next to my coworkers, when I'm, like, frustrated because people in the MTR at 7-Eleven aren't going fast enough, I'm just like, what is it about being faster that's so much better? And I had to do a heart check in that moment. Because somewhere, somewhere deep inside of my heart, I feel like the more I'm able to do in the shorter amount of time, that proves my worth or my significance. It proves somehow that I'm more capable, more able, and it gives me more time to do other things. Ultimately what? It's selfish. Ultimately, it just comes down to me. It just comes down to my way, my style, my timeline. And for many of you, and many of us, 
Like if things don't happen in our way according to our time schedule, what happens? We get impatient. We don't trust God. Some of us, we, we, we're like, God, I've done these things for you, but where's that thing that you promised to me? I'm waiting for this to happen, and I've been praying for so long, but why isn't it happening? Some of us, we're investing in our LCGs. We're trying to spend time with our life group members. Like, God, why isn't the person changing? That person probably is like, why isn't this person changing? You got to be humble, right? You're like, why isn't this person changing? And, and we're just wondering, we're just so frustrated because things aren't going according to the way that we want it to go. But what does that reveal about our hearts? What does it reveal about our desire to control, to have things our way? If it doesn't go our way, then we have a bad attitude. We get frustrated, we get angry, we get bitter. It all points back to us. And maybe God is saying, it's not about you and your timeline and your schedule. And part of being patient isn't just a virtue that you just need to develop for the sake of developing it. It's because patience is really God trying to get our attention to take the control back from our hands so that we release that control back to God for our lives. I like this verse that Adrian Rogers uses in this article, Long Suffering. He says, the Bible says that the fruit of the Spirit is long suffering. I'll tell you one thing about fruit. You will never see a fruit factory. Isn't that right? I mean, maybe, it, you know, in supermarkets these days, they might have fruit factories. You see a shirt factory, but you see a fruit orchard. You see, there's no fruit without life. You cannot manufacture patience. The fruit of the Spirit is patience. Many of us, we know that verse from Galatians. The, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience is if we don't have this fruit of patience in our lives, it means we're going against the very Spirit of God that He has put in us and for us to guide us along our lives. If we somehow think that we're going to manufacture our lives, we're going to optimize it so that everything can go according to our plan. And whenever it doesn't go to our plan, we get angry. And what does that show us? That we are not in control of our lives. That's God's business over and over again. It's to show us that we are not in control of ultimately our lives, our plans, our future. But we, we, we still try to take control with our future, with our plans, with our friendships. We're constantly trying to take control. And I think it's really interesting that Esther, she says, pray for me three days. What else do we notice in the Bible happened for three days? That was how long Jesus was in the tomb. In Matthew 12, verse 40, Jesus predicts his own death, and he prophesies about the time that he's going to spend in the tomb. 
It says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. I'm just wondering, just, just hypothetical, just imagining right now, like how the disciples must have felt those days while Jesus was in the tomb. It must have been hopeless. It must have been despair. It must have been excruciatingly painful to find out the, the master and the Lord, the hope of the world that you are banking your whole life on has now died. And they wouldn't find out that there was hope until three days later. But I'm wondering and thinking, what do those three days really do in the hearts of the disciples that time? For them to go through, to wrestle through the emotions, the agony, the despair, the hopelessness. I'm wondering if Esther did that on purpose. I'm wondering if God sent three days for a reason. And for us to be able to say, you know what? Maybe there's a purpose. Maybe there's a reason. Maybe there's a reason why God isn't doing things according to my own time schedule. Maybe there's a reason that God has for me for why he's not doing it according to the way I want it to be. And maybe the reason is because God wants to dig something out of my own heart that shouldn't be there, that he wants to replace with his control and his love and his sovereignty over my life. Can we learn to be patient? Can we learn to give God control of our lives, in all aspects of our lives. And it's interesting, and we know what ended, up, what ended up happening to Mordecai. How did God eventually end up using him in the end of the story? When we see how he was patient, when we see how he was steady, when he, we see how he was available, Let's read Esther chapter 10, verse 3. This is the end of the whole book, the end of the whole story. This is after Esther and Mordecai, they work together to actually save all the Jews. The Jews are delivered from the evil enemies. And at the end, now the king gives all the authority to Mordecai. So Esther 10, verse 3 says, For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Azarius. And he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. And when I read this verse and I'm wondering, like, what was it so special about Mordecai that allowed him to become second of all the kingdom? And we covered most of the verses in the book of Esther that mentioned Mordecai, at least the things that he did. There's no indication that he was super trained, he was well-versed, he was qualified to do administration, to rule a kingdom. But what we do see is that God really shaped and used his character so that he could make an impact, that he could be used by God to save all the Jews in that time. And not only to save all the Jews, to but to go beyond that one step further, to be great among the Jews and then popular among all the people of that kingdom and actually seeking the welfare of all the people. 
Like I'm wondering if some of us, we will think and realize, you know what? God is working something in my life right now. God is, God is putting me through trials and changes and difficulties right now. God is opening my eyes. He's bringing people to confront me about different character issues right now because he wants to do something greater with my life in the future. Because he wants me to make an impact for something greater that I can't see right now. I can't imagine right now. Could Mordecai have imagined when he adopted Esther as his daughter that he would be second in command of the whole kingdom? Can we imagine, for some of us, we're struggling with basic little things, that maybe this character refining that God is doing right now is to prepare for something to impact someone else that he loves and he cares about. Last verse, in 2 Peter 3.9 in the New Living Translation, it says, The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. And I'm wondering if the reason why God doesn't seem to be doing things according to our timeline, maybe the reason why he's working on our character so much, not because he's slow, not because he doesn't know what he's doing. Because he is patient through Jesus Christ. He is all-knowing. And he is wanting to use us so that one more person can know him in their own personal relationship with God. So that one more person can say, Jesus Christ is my Lord and my Savior. One more person can believe that Jesus Christ, he actually died on the cross he actually rose again from the grave. That gives us hope to share that with one more person on this world. And that's why for us this morning, the one thing is that our capacity to change the world comes from cultivating a Christ-like character. Our capacity to change the world comes from cultivating a Christ-like character. Let's grow in this character together Let's really believe that maybe it's God really working on us and through us to help us to make a greater impact. I want to give us some next steps. There are just two main things for this morning. The first is just reflect on your life in light of Christ. There's two ways I want us to reflect this coming week. The first way is to reflect, what is God doing in our lives? What, what areas of character is he trying to refine? What things about Christ is it that he's, he's trying to Maybe he's being patient with us right now because we're just too stubborn or hard-headed. Like maybe there, I think for many of us, there have been some significant moments, even in the last couple months, even maybe a couple weeks, that we've just totally missed out on what God is trying to speak to us because we haven't sat down to say, I need to reflect. I need to process through all the things that God has been doing in my life. And the other way that I want us to reflect is to also look at Jesus' life, reflecting on who he was, what characteristics did he have. And let's aspire to imitate him. Of course, we can't do it according to our own strength. God willing, as we pray and we humble and we repent, that God will allow us to grow in those areas. But let's identify, let's understand, let's reflect what is God already doing in our lives right now. And who is it that God wants us to be that will take some reflection? Find your journal. To talk to your LCG and say, hey, you know what, LCG? I don't know how to reflect. Can you teach me? 
I'm not, I'm not sure what I'm doing. Sometimes I'm just writing gibberish on a page and it just looks like chicken scratch. It doesn't really benefit me. How do you reflect in a way that is beneficial? This is why we have community. This is why we have life group, to be able to help one another develop in some of these practical skills so that we can encounter Christ in a different way. So reflect on your life in light of Christ. The second thing is that practice the four R's of transformation. Practice the four R's of transformation. If we have any hope in developing our character, it cannot be our own hard work. It cannot be our own discipline. It cannot be just because we're trying harder. The reason why we have these four R's of transformation is we really believe it's the work of the Holy Spirit that allows us to grow and develop in our character, to become more like Jesus in every single way. And I want to give us those four steps. The four R's of transformation is number one, realize. Realize the brokenness, realize the ways that we've gone astray from God, realize our sin, realize how we've fallen short from God's standard. The second thing is to repent. After you've realized that, then say, God, I'm sorry. I apologize. I don't want to go that way anymore. I want to turn around. I want to go your way. That sin that I've committed, I don't want to do it again. So then receive. Receive God's grace. Because if we really realize, you know what, God, I, I, I realize this is such a heinous sin. It's so offensive to you. And I'm sorry, and I don't want to. I'm repenting right now to say, God, I don't want to do this anymore. And when we realize that we're so undeserving, then receiving his grace makes so much more sense. It becomes something so amazing. Like, wow, I can't believe God would have died for someone like me. For someone as sinful and as broken and as rebellious as me. And as we receive that grace, then that turns to love. And what does love compel us to do? It compels us to say, God, I want to obey. And that's why we recommit. Say, God, you know, even though I, I've fallen so many times again, and I know I'm going to fall again, but I want to recommit. God, I want to love you. I want to obey you. I want to do the things that you want me to do because I've been so undeserving. You've given me everything. How can I repay you? I cannot repay you. But all I could do is just give you my whole heart and my whole life. And we do that over and over again. We go through the cycle of realizing, repenting, receiving, and recommitting over and over again. And over time, we believe and we trust that God is going to use that to help us to become more like Christ to develop in our character so that we can make an impact on this world. Can we stand together and we'll close? And I want us to respond together this morning. Let's just focus on that first next step to reflect on our lives in light of Christ. Maybe there are some situations right now going on in our lives, in our hearts. We just totally missed out what God is trying to do. Maybe we've been so impatient, so angry, so unavailable, so unloving. Maybe we've been up and down. And maybe we've been just going about life and just trying to figure out the struggles on our own. But what if God is using those circumstances, those situations, that tension to get our attention, 
say, you know what? Maybe there's something deeper that God wants to speak to us about. Can we just start off more reflective in that way? Can we just think back to the last week, the last month? Just take inventory. Just think through what has happened. What is God saying to me? What are the things that he's trying to do to get my attention? That he wants to do so that I can grow in my character and ultimately make a difference. Can we just do that? Just spend some time. If you need to get out your phone or if you brought your journal and just write some, jot some notes down. And as you're jotting notes down, let that turn into prayer. Let that turn into this process of prayer, of, of saying, God, I'm sorry if I missed out your cues. I'm, I'm sorry if I've been so angry and disobedient. I'm sorry if, if all these things have happened I've totally missed it. But God, allow me to come back to you get up again and recommit. Can we just do that? Let's spend some time just reflecting, just a couple minutes, and then we'll spend some time in response.